Sydney Opera House's Popular House Stories podcast returns with four new episodes unearthing untold stories from behind the scenes of the world-famous sales. Explore the iconic building's transformation for the 21st century, delve into captivating tales about the artists and performances on our stages, and much, much more. Start listening now at sydneyoperahouse.com slash digital slash podcasts or on your favourite podcast platform. Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. How can we find justice for friends who can no longer speak for themselves? A friend, a lawyer and a journalist explore the profound commitment of friendship and collective action. Moderated by Julia Baird, this is a big conversation about feminism and the law, friendship and power, hope and action. Recorded live at the Sydney Opera House for All About Women 2022. Hello, all you lovely All About Womeners. Welcome to this panel for Kate. And all of those joining us in person and those of us, those joining us online as well. My name is Julia Baird. I'm an author and a journalist. I host a show on the ABC called The Drum, where, oh, it's a drum viewer. Hey, there they are. <laughs> Um, where something we discuss regularly, almost nightly for a period when this story was being broken, was the impact of this horrendous personal tale. It's electrifying story, and in for what, for many ways, I think was a really pivotal moment in the history of our country, in which each of these three people brought their significant analytical capacity and their expertise to over a period of months, which again, you would have seen, if not years. I should of course say that um, we're gonna be having some difficult conversations. It's a very sensitive conversation. We're gonna be talking about um, allegations of sexual assault and always do keep in mind that if anything even makes you just feel upset in any way um, or even just stick in the stomach, please do remember that we have resources like 1-800-RESPECT that you can call at any time and they are highly trained to be um, dealing with, with a myriad, multiple responses that so many of us have when these things are being discussed. I want to introduce our excellent panel here. Jo Dyer is to my left. She's the candidate for the federal seat of Boothby. Thank you. got one or two opinions about things, um, <laughs> many of which were contained in her book on the state of our politics running down the house. So thank you for welcoming her. Michael Bradley was Kate's lawyer and he's also a managing partner at his firm Mark. Can I just read just a little bit? Just he's, This is the way he describes himself on his website. <laughs> Regarded by some as the idiot savant of the legal profession. <laughs> Michael achieved fame as managing partner of its, his previous firm by giving all his staff $400 to spend on a pair of shoes. <laughs> that is such a win. Apart from his well-deserved reputation as a shameless self-promoter, Michael is actually a lawyer too. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. A few other things he's expert in. Just quietly, I have a lot of respect for them. I'm not just blah, blahing it away. As managing partner, he's treated by all the staff with a complete lack of respect, just the way he likes it. 
He says he's happy as a clam and only regrets that the Spice Girls aren't together anymore. <laughs> Please welcome Michael Bradley. And Samantha Maiden, one of the most inc incredibly hard-working and fearless reporters in the country, in the press gallery. She is an endless breaker of, of stories. Like, she just, she gets scoop after scoop. She is renowned for her tenacity. And uh, she's been working on a book. Does it have a working title? Can we? Yeah, it's called Open Secrets. Open Secrets. Published by right. About kind of much of this about the Brittany Higgins story, which we can't really talk about today because the judge has asked us not to. Um, and she's the, the most recent winner of the Gold Walkley Australian Journalism's <laughs> highest honour. Now, I want to preface this entire and frame this entire conversation just by just by knowing and understanding one thing, which is that Christian Porter has repeatedly, robustly denied any allegations which have been put to him. It has been the subject of litigation or attempted litigation. He gave a press conference saying, the only thing I'm ever going to be able to say, and it's the truth, is that nothing in the allegations that have been printed ever happened. He believes it was the most wild, intense, unrestrained series of accusations he can remember in Australian, modern Australian politics. Now, there probably will be things to say about that and that press conference later, but I do just need to say, say that first of all. Now, as we've watched the Me Too movement, unfold, which has been the inheritor of so many kind of decades of, of women fighting for their voice and talking about their right to their bodies and to um, respect and safety and autonomy. One of the catch cries was, believe her. I believe her. And there's been a lot of discussion about what that actually means, which is what I want to start out by talking about today. But before we begin, I just want each of our panellists to say briefly, the moment at which they first heard the story, heard the allegations, and the, their initial reaction to it. Joe. So Kate and I had not been in contact for many years um, from the time that we had been very close friends as teenagers and into our early 20s. You know, life goes in different ways. I was at law school. Kate was studying history. Um, I then moved into the arts, and from really that point, Kate and I had not been close. Um, but she got back in touch with me in the middle of 2019, um, and really very soon uh, into that kind of reconnection, she said that she... So this is July 2019. She said to me um, that she wanted to talk to me. Um, she was hoping to get my support uh, in a matter, um, or as she put it, um, some shit that Christian Porter pulled on me back in 1988. Um, so I immediately assumed that it would be something relating to some kind of sexual misconduct, mm -hmm. simply because of the environment that we were in at that time. Um, but had no idea what the extent of it would be. 
And we then met up shortly thereafter in Adelaide, um, at which point she fully disclosed to me um, the allegations that she that she went on to make to, mm. to others as well. And your initial reaction to that? Well, just dismay and um, devastation for her. Um, I believed her uh, immediately. The main reason is why on earth would you make up something like that? Like what on earth would be a motivation for some 30 years later to construct an incredibly detailed story um, about what had happened at this really critical and pivotal time of our lives. Um, she knew then, um, and the reason that she came to me and to others in um, the social circle from that time, that she wanted to take it forward and go public. Um, there was no doubt in her mind that that was a way that she thought that she could um, move forward, um, get some kind of closure. Um, what that would then mean, um, obviously, was then the subject of, of much conversations with me and, and with others. Um, but the story was detailed, lengthy, um, kind of appalling, uh, and did not change from the first time that she spoke to me about it until the last... What about you, Michael? Yeah, um, Kate made contact with me in around September 2019 um, and came to see me uh, and told me her story, um, which ultimately became her police statement. Um, and, and as Joe says, the story never changed from the first um, time I met her to, um, to what ultimately... Uh, she, she took to the police. Um, she was contemplating her um, choices at that point, her options as to whether she would go to the police and, and why. Um, it's a matter of public record that um, she ultimately felt that um, her interest was in having her story as part of the public record, um, as she put it, um, to one day be discovered, um, if nothing else. And uh, I, um, the impression she made on me initially and through the, the, the following months where we spent quite a lot of time together was that she was telling her truth. And what about, what about you, Sam? You kind of, you came at it through a different perspective as a reporter. Yeah, so I was much more at arm's length um, because I was not someone as Joe and Mr Bradley were that she had disclosed to. But Mr Bradley, sorry, I just, <laughs> yes, I just so did that just to mess with his head. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, see, I got him. He's going to have to buy me a pair of four hundred dollars shoes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I have to tell you the moment I found out, and then trace back because I have a strange coincidental connection with her going back years. So I knew um, around the traps, uh, there'd been these rumours that they're around Canberra, that there was some sort of allegation that was not 
fully formed around Christian Porter. And then, of course, Louise Milligan brought out the Canberra bubble story. And uh, there was an element of that where it seemed to be building to a crescendo in relation to Christian Porter that never arrived. So there was an aspect of that program that was like a table that was missing a leg. You're waiting for it to get to this point that it never did. And, and Joy was in that program. Yeah. And, and so when I watched that program... I had heard, I mean, I couldn't even tell you who had told me, right? It was sort of in the ether, this idea that Four Corners had some allegation of sexual misconduct in some way. I wasn't sure of the details, but that they'd been unable to put it in for legal reasons. So I knew that. And I didn't know who it involved. Uh, I also knew, sadly, um, because I had gone to school with Kate and uh, in Adelaide, and I'd later gone to university... Uh, sometime a, a month or so after she died, I went on one of those ridiculous walks, that, like the long walk. I think it's like 31 kilometres or 20. <laughs> don't ask me why I did this. <laughs> and during the course of this walk, a mutual friend who'd gone to school with um, her told me that Kate had died, um, which was quite full on to learn that information mm -hmm. because I wasn't close to Kate. I hadn't seen her in many years, but it's, of course, always quite disturbing to hear that someone you knew many years ago had, had died so young. Uh, and we had a long conversation, but I didn't know that all these things were connected. And so when Louise Milligan broke the story for the ABC online, obviously that story didn't mention Christian Porter. This was then a subject of quite lengthy defamation action that was ultimately discontinued. But on that night when Louise Milligan broke the story, I came home to a friend's house. I was actually staying in Sydney and I said, Oh, my God. I said, we must know this woman. She's my age. She went to Adelaide University. We 100% must know this person. And my friend said to me, oh, Sammy, don't you realise it's Kate? And I was quite shocked uh, by that. And it was quite bracing for me as well because I had, you know, just spent several weeks covering the Brittany Higgins story and to then have this explosion of this other issue in the midst of that and then to find out entirely coincidentally I had this you know sort of link in the past to this person it was quite confronting and the other kind of very curious little coincidence that emerged was that when I got hold of uh, the affidavit had, that had been attached to the letter to the Prime Minister Bizarrely, my name was in it because I had been in Women on Campus uh, with Kate, which is a women's group at university, and for some reason there was all this information about Women on Campus, and there was my name and my landline phone number <laughs> that I'd had, and so it was a very, it was just a strange experience because mm. I don't pretend to have been close to her as mm. as Joe was, and and obviously um, Mr. Bradley um, <laughs> through his work, but but I did feel that I had a bit of a connection with her, and so it was just very shocking. Mm. And so much, so many of the things that you've said, Joe and her friends have said, have spoken about how sparkling she was and how brilliant she was and how this enormous potential that was snuffed out, you know, in many ways around that time, you know, and, and, and kind of got progressively worse. But uh, there's been a lot of discussion about, too, about what would have, um, why she took so long to come forward. But what would have happened in 1988 had she come forward with that story? Well, it's very hard to know. Um, I think it is completely understandable why she wouldn't have come forward at that time. Um, I mean, it, 
the world in which we were all living. I mean, we were all very close to each other in that world of debating. It was entirely incestuous um, and very exciting world, very dynamic. Uh, and the idea that you would come out and make such an accusation against one of your own, um, particularly someone uh, with whom she was close and had a, a very strong friendship. Um, and, you know, it was a sort of chaotically drunken time. Um, and the interesting thing about it was that Kate and Christian and the other two people who were in the Australian national schools team, so they were teenagers, um, and Kate was going back to school. Um, the others weren't. That was their sort of... They were leaving school and going to university, but so they were younger than most of the people there as well. Right. Um, you wouldn't get away with doing the sorts of, like, the things that happened there, there was really no supervision for these teenagers and particularly for Kate. And I know that um, in retrospect, she found that difficult and surprising and irresponsible of the way that debating tournaments had been organised, that they were just sort of let loose in this university environment um, where there was lots of alcohol and there was, you know, lots of bad behaviour. Um, so, look, I just don't think it ever occurred to her that she would. Um, and, you know, she talked about about the way, the behaviour that she, um, or the way that she responded, um, the nights, the days after, which was is very common in the way that mm. young women, in particular, who, who have suffered um, abuse or assault, is that you just sort of get on with it, mm. um, continue to behave as if nothing had happened, interacted with Christian, normally interacted with the rest of the national team um, and the other friends of hers that were there, um, and I, it just wasn't. It wasn't something that she thought about doing at the time. Mm. But I think the reality was is that it was it had such a profound effect on her and the way that it sort of disrupted the trust that she had in other people and in particular in those of whom she was going to have intimate relationships that over the years as she matured as an individual and got perspective uh, on those sorts of issues and relationships more broadly. I mean, she, she became quite a strong feminist quite quickly after that mm. uh, in order to try and find the tools, I think, to deal with it. Mm. Um, that she understood that if she... She had tried for 30 years to bury it um, and it had failed. Mm. Um, so whilst she understood the risks um, that she would confront uh, and the danger to her own mental health, um, she thought that she tried everything else. Mm. We probably also didn't understand very well then I think there was an idea that a sexual assault happened at a period of time and then over, you just got over it yeah. eventually. Like we've got a much more sophisticated understanding of how trauma plays out over a period of time. But if we can talk about the, the moment that this um, story broke and that what, what that meant for each of you. And I think, Michael, we instantly saw a whole a competing narratives take off. How did you see that play out? Had you been, you'd been confided in, you knew the story, you knew it, and then when something is wrenched from a very personal space and taken out into the media, it kind of becomes another beast, doesn't it? Yeah, very much. Yeah, it was, um, it was pretty weird because um, yeah, we kind of, we knew, um, you know, the story was there. We knew Kate had, um, had died, uh, and it was some months after that that, um, uh, and, and I knew that um, her story was going to be part of the first Four Corners uh, 
program that ultimately was pulled by the lawyers. So it kind of was then back sitting in the, you know, in the background somewhere waiting. Um, and then, yeah, and then it launched um, through, um, you know, the choices of, of third parties, not, obviously not Kate's choice. Um, and it was suddenly an extremely public piece of property. Uh, and then, yeah, this sort of, the war began immediately and um, the response um, of Porter and his supporters, mm. his government, was textbook. Um, and uh, in fact, probably an almost perfect exemplar of how um, institutions tend to respond still to these when an allegation like this surfaces against one of their own. Um, and so, yeah, this, this battle for the, the narrative to gain that sort of, you know, moral upper hand um, began and, um, and so much of it got from then on was just and continues to be um, confused by the the um, co-opting co of legal concepts and the, the legal system structure around what ultimately is not a legal question. Um, you know, the rule of law, the presumption of innocence, the, all, of, all of that, and this whole sort of war has been waged around that with this, you know, sort of um, dichotomous um, context, like either he's guilty and the worst person in the history of the world, or he's innocent. Which is a completely unhelpful way to approach a question like this, but that's sort of where it's where it's played out, um, and and that continues. Right. So you're operating here as as a lawyer, kind of entirely cognizant of how the legal system has failed women, and in fact, not even that is is entirely constructed in a way to what's the word delegitimate, not like say that their claims not lot legitimate, their testimony is is harder to be heard. Well, yeah, the, the, the system, um, you know, our criminal justice system, which is the primary response that we have to, um, to someone who's alleging that, that they're a victim of sexual violence, um, runs this you know, clear um, line, which is um, he's presumed innocent unless he's proved guilty beyond reasonable doubt, doesn't have to... He doesn't have to participate in that process, can maintain the right of silence. Um, and the consequence of a finding of guilt beyond reasonable doubt is um, extremely dramatic. That, that paints him as a perpetrator of the worst kind, whoever he is. Um, otherwise, he's innocent. Um, and, um, it, uh, and the way... So what that does systemically is... Um, it puts the complainant, the, the survivor, in the frame as if essentially the sole witness of what did or didn't happen. So the whole system, from start to finish, focuses on her. And she is, she's coming from a starting point of not being believed, because that's the way the system works. And so she's then subjected to this process of being constantly having to prove that she's telling the truth while being questioned, 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 disbelieved, discredited, attacked. And why would mm. anybody volunteer 
to subject themselves to that. And, you know, and that's just because the criminal justice system wasn't designed for rape, but it's been adapted to it. Wrong system, wrong, wrong answer. What, what is meant when you're reporting on it, um, Sam, and trying to ascertain the truth, but also it, wrestling with which bits of evidence and testimony to publish because uh, because fragments were used to um, question her credibility and she was not around to answer for herself. Yeah, I think it's a really difficult area. Um, the other thing, just touching on what you were discussing earlier about that question of what would have happened if she'd gone to the King's yes. Cross police station, uh, is this, is anyone, and many people in this room will have read reports or perhaps even the full affidavit, which is available via the federal court, um, her account is that um, she basically, you know, went out for drinks and dancing and that Christian Porter came back to the university, you know, rooms where she was staying. Now, he was quite clear, we should say, in his press conference that he held that he never went back to that room. So he said that on the record. But Kate's account is that they did. And her account is that um, they start having sexual contact that is consensual, right? So that is the account that she gives, that there's some agreement on consensual sexual activity, but then while that is occurring, that escalates into non-consensual activity, right? And then there is an account of her becoming unwell while this is um, going on, vomiting, uh, her being put in a bath or shower by him to clean her is her account and then he puts her back to bed and then her account is that she wakes up in the middle of the night to him actually raping her now again we need to say I know you said at the beginning but he completely denies that and say that he didn't want to go he didn't even go back to the room the point I want to make about that is that notions of consent in Australia have changed remarkably even in the last 10 years let alone the last 30 years so what do we know about I suppose we we can't ever know exactly what would have happened if she'd gone to a police station at that moment in time and said, I had drunk alcohol, I had a man back to my apartment, we engaged in consensual sexual activity that then escalated into something non-consensual. But I dare say she would have gotten a uh, far less interested response than she may from police today. So that's one issue, right, that we're judging it by the different standards. To me, the story would have always would have made more sense if Christian Porter had said, look, yes, um, we had some sort of interaction. Yes, I went back to her uh, apartment. Uh, yes, we engaged in this sexual activity, but what she said happened didn't occur. Um, it wasn't a sexual assault. Um, there were things that were in that affidavit that didn't happen. There were things that were in the affidavit that did. That would be an account that would make sense to me. And that, right? I have to say, that is exactly what we assumed but, he right. would do. But we don't have that. We've got a completely different scenario where he has said none of this happened. None, yep. right? So there's no question of consent because he says... Nothing, nothing occurred, right? Mm. Um, now, on the question of what you put in and what you put out, now, there was almost like this situation arrived, I think, where there was almost polemicist reporting, like it was sort of like you got the two extremes depending on where you went. It was very difficult because people became very tribal about it, right? So there's people that say, this happened and Christian Porter is an alleged, etc. And then there's people that say... This is an outrage. The system has completely failed him. He has been subjected to something that 
is almost unparalleled in Australian political history. So you've got this massive divide, right? And then you have this situation where there was a lot of uh, this idea that some people left out of their reporting some things that were in the diaries and, and some things that they didn't. Now, I'll be honest, um, I left out some aspects that were in her original affidavit because it was just too graphic to actually publish, right? It was, you know, like it was, people would be very shocked by it. And, you know, it's now there on the public record via the federal court. There was also some issues that I left out of my original reporting because it would tend to identify, right? So this was in the lead up to um, Christian Porter revealing that he was the subject of the allegation. So there were, you know, there was this patchwork where you weren't getting the full picture of the affidavit for a variety of reasons. And then then we had this controversy that emerged when Jenna Albertson and Peter Van Onsen wrote a piece about the diaries. People got very angry about that, but I have to be honest, like I had a slightly different view, which is I never fully understood the controversy to the extent that uh, another reporter, I think it was Greg Birrup, had written a, a quite a detailed piece for the Weekend Australian before they did their piece, which dealt with all of this stuff with the diaries. People didn't seem to react to that in the same well, way. Well, I think it was, it was the way that they contextualised it. it yeah, it was, was more the, the fact outrage. that they they mounted an argument that essentially was the Prime Minister should have read this document because if he had, he would know that there was all these questions that are raised by it and basically accusing the media of suppressing some things. Although, you know, I dare say that, like, there were still issues that they didn't deal with in that report, again, because for matters of the, the graphic... Yeah, they, I think it's pretty obvious why everyone took great exception to Peter Van Onslen and Janet Albrechtson, because the actual framing of the quotations from Kate's diaries were, look, she's mad. Yeah. Why are we believing yeah. this? And it was absolutely I think, outrageous. I think as a reporter, I think the issue with the way, the way that was written up was... We, people were expected to have just raw data, diary entries from a woman who had been suffering trauma and um, was struggling with a whole bunch of things and just kind of thrown out there without any context of an expert saying this is what trauma can do, this is how to read these things. I mean, that's why we have psychologists in court. That's why you have, like, I just... I think if you're going to report that story, you need to have that kind of context. I understand that, but, but I'm also uncomfortable with the idea that we are saying that you can only report on this matter... I don't think that's what people were saying at all. ..adhere to basically saying that it's true. No, I don't think that's what people were saying at all. What I think people took great exception at was that they were saying they used the very trauma that Kate had said clearly and consistently had been caused by the assault as the reason not to believe her story about the assault. Mm-hmm. Which you well, know. Th- this was this was this issue was covered in the performance of the opening night, and this idea that was raised that the victim is the evidence, right? Like many of you would have been there that that night, and th- and I do understand that, and and this idea that you know all of the the things that are forget about this case, but in these cases in general, all of the experiences of trauma, the increased risk of um, you know substance abuse, are then used to discredit this person Mm -hmm. when they can often be diagnostic. Like, I do understand that. Um, And it was being done by two people who had a very clear agenda, which we had already seen play out and continue to play out. Sure, but, like, there were also... You could say that... You could criticise me and say, 
I had an agenda in my reporting because I went to university with it, right? Like you can. Well, I, but I don't think the evidence bears that out. Whereas sure. with Peter Van Onsel and Janet Albrechtson, it, cle it was clear and there and consistent. Joe, can you tell us what it was like being a group of in a group of friends who were trying to ensure that her voice was heard in all this massive politicisation and all that kind of context. Um, and knowing that she was completely unable to, to speak for herself. Tell us how that worked. Well, it, it, it was just awful. You know, it, from the beginning, it was just an unbelievably stressful situation um, that none of us had any idea really how one should be handling. Mm. Um, but what we did know is that Kate had been very clear about what she wanted, um, which was that the story should be on the record. Um, and we had had conversations, as she'd had with Michael, um, about whether or not uh, the criminal justice system was the best route to pursue. She was very clear-eyed about the likelihood of um, charges being laid, let alone a conviction being pursued. So there was no naivety about what the prospects were if she went down that path. Um, the media was another path that she had, you know, we actively discussed. And indeed, your name was someone that came up as, some, as a person that could potentially be an interlocutor in an issue that was this sensitive. Um, but obviously going to the media, particularly with News Corp, as indeed subsequently played out um, after her death anyway, um, was the, the way that she would be attacked. And, you know, she was fragile. So there were clear risks um, for her personally if she did that. But nonetheless, mm. this, was, um, this was something that she felt that she had to do. Um, she had spoken again quite explicitly um, about what she wanted from this group of friends um, and a couple of people within that group in particular if the burden became too heavy. Um, and, you know, she had uh, attempted suicide before, um, so I, it never occurred to me that that was a possible outcome, and that was naive of me uh, in retrospect, but that, that she didn't want the story to die with her should that happen. So these things had been actively and explicitly discussed, so we knew what her um, wish would be. We weren't speculating about it, we knew, um, and therefore, we felt a responsibility to to keep going. Um, uh, and I guess because Christian was in the position that he was, it made the stakes... Obviously, the stakes were enormously high, um, both for him and, you know, the political maelstrom that enveloped us, us all, but also if someone holds such high office um, and has the privileges and the power associated with that, and I think this is goes back to Michael's point about these questions weren't necessarily legal questions, but kind of they became political and moral questions. Right. Um, is it... Okay for someone who has who is the subject of these incredibly serious and to our mind and the minds of the New South Wales police these credible allegations, um, can they just deny it to the prime minister and then continue as if nothing has happened? And I think that was clearly to us unacceptable 
um, there had to be some kind of testing of these allegations. And again, I, as I've said, we've all said in the media, that we were never demanding any kind of outcome. We knew, I mean, obviously, the 30 years mm. had passed. It was the case of there was, Kate was gone, so there was no living witness apart from Christian who was denying everything. Mm. You know, there were contemporaneous accounts. There were others who could absolutely prove that what Christian was saying um, about their relationship um, and about, um, you know, events were not true. Like, so he, there were lies, and I'm sorry, Michael, to say no, that that boldly. There were lies that he was telling. Mm. He was telling. Now, there, you know, why he might have felt that it was safer to deny everything and that they had any kind of relationship at all. You can see, well, that would have been easy. But these things were easily, dis, you know, disproven. Well, not um, so easily though, because of defamation law. Well, no, and and, and this is okay. my frustration with this whole matter is that you know, what is publicly known is still the tip of the iceberg, right? And that is a very difficult thing, you know, and this is where I think that, you know, the system has failed Kate, but, I mean, the system has failed Christian Porter arguably as well, right? But because if he had if, gone... If, 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 if he had... Okay, yeah, let's talk about what should, what should have happened. Yeah. And I don't mean as... It got pretty ugly with, you know, talking about Brittany Higgins' story as whether it's going to be a net positive or negative for the government. I don't mean in a political sense at all, like in a kind of a justice sense. And it's sort of satisfying the people in this group watching now that... that but they've been, been heard, and the, some of the assumptions have been tested. Like, what should have happened? Well, I, I think, and, and Michael can probably talk to this as yes. well. But very quickly for me, what should have happened is that there should have been an independent and confidential inquiry where everybody could have told their stories um, openly, uh, and then that that evidence that had been forward, brought forward by Kate's own sworn statements, um, Christian statements, the statements of all of us who were around at the time, could have been heard and assessed independently. Um, and then whatever the outcome had been from that, we would have been satisfied. But the problem but you, is, what would have that outcome been? Well, that's not the, that's not the point. I mean, the, the alternative hypothesis is, is a simple one. Yeah, it's like... I mean, Porter knew about all this a long time before it became public. He knew that the allegation was out there and he knew that Kate had um, passed away. He could have and should have, as the Attorney-General... Um, come out, said, this allegation has been made against me. I deny it. I'm going to stand down as Attorney-General. I want an inquiry. Please hold an inquiry. Let's get this dealt with, because the question here is not, am I guilty to the criminal standard of this crime? Because we all know, by then we all knew, and remains the case, that, a, that a, the prospect of a criminal trial was... You know, it's just a furphy. We're never going to happen. Nevertheless, the question is, was he fit and proper to continue as Attorney-General and a member of the Federal Cabinet? And that's a really deadly serious question, and the there is an appropriate mechanism that the law provides for dealing with that, and that is the course he should have taken. And if he had taken that course, then everything would have played out quite differently. Um, the other thing I'd say in terms of, you know, alternative hypotheses hmm. or ways this could have played out, the other thing that could have happened is that um, Kate went to the New South Wales Police in very late 2019 and, made, and gave them her written statement. This is all public record. They were going to um, interview her uh, to take her formal statement to 
trigger the, the investigation. For various reasons, um, she went back to Adelaide. Um, they were supposed to, the New South Wales cops were supposed to fly down to Adelaide to see her. COVID intervened, um, things dragged out. Anyway, this has all come out through a New South Wales Upper House inquiry. Um, there, were, there was an approval for the detectives to fly to Adelaide um, in early 2020 to take Kate's statement. It didn't happen because it was blocked at a very high level in the New South Wales police force. Apparently, they also are unaware of the existence of Zoom. Um, <laughs> And so there was, so, and they were also unaware apparently of, of what police do quite often, which is commission interstate police. South Australia also has a police force um, to do it for them. Now, none of that happened. And All of which was canvassed um, at the time as well. So it could yep. have happened, but choices were made for it not to happen. Yeah. And so, yeah, you know, why? I mean, those, those questions remain open and unanswered. Um, and pretty important questions too. Yeah, I think that uh, I just need to inject a bit more information there, whether it's useful or not. Um, Mr Bradley may disagree with me. The reason why the interview didn't go ahead was COVID. So there was this incredibly unfortunate coincidence of events where almost just at the time that they were discussing going to Adelaide to discuss this matter, the rules changed around when the police could no, go. No, that's not, that's not completely well, accurate. Well, but it, it, it was around the same time that the rules changed and there was a decision made not to go. Now, I think there's lots of questions around that, but it was it, there was a rule change within a 24, 48 no, hour... No, no, the rule... That's actually not accurate. Um, the, that is what the police alleged, that the, the interstate police... You were no, the police were no longer to, able to travel interstate. That's not true. Hmm. They were not allowed anymore to travel internationally. Internationally. And yeah. they were allowed to travel interstate if a deputy commissioner approved it. Yes. And that and had come before the deputy commissioner, deputy commissioner. And he yeah. said no, even though it had already travelled up three levels of the hierarchy, including the people who had direct carriage of the investigation within the sex crimes unit. So Hudson came in and said no, even though all of his employees working directly on the case said yes. And the borders were still open and police were still travelling. And there were other discussions where I think that she would have been willing to, con to participate in some sort of Zoom or online issue. Yep. And the police seemed to be arguing about that for various reasons. It was also to do with which support people would be in place and so on and so forth, right? So there were all of these issues buzzing around, but I just think that, you know, look, I, I just think we need to be a bit cautious about also, you know, explaining what the position of the New South Wales Police is. Like, I expect oh, look, that you don't agree with it, but I just, you know, like, I just think in the interest of balance, we need to sort of put that out there as well. So... Well, look, I, I wrote about it at the time and... I'm not, I'm not alleging a conspiracy theory about that. I don't know why they didn't do it and why, why they dragged the chain on it. But what I do know is that Kate's experience as a survivor dealing with the New South Wales Police was very typical. Very typical. It's also about the question of urgency, isn't it? Like, yeah. how urgent is this problem? How but urgent it, is this question? And it's always the case with sexual assault. Yeah, but in violence. terms of the process, right, um, yes, there are some people who would argue, as Michael and Joe does, that there should have been some sort of, you know, extrajudicial inquiry or some sort of process. I think that is difficult because... It is, there is the issue within Dyson Hayden, you were dealing with a workplace issue. What is the precedent, right, to set up a 
investigation into whether or not someone is fit and proper to be Attorney General. They have hearings in the United States. There's no clear precedent for this to occur in Australia yeah, with yeah, a there is. There is. criminal... Well, what is Lionel it? Murphy was a sitting High Court judge, was subjected to an extrajudicial inquiry. He was accused of corruption. Uh, and then he died before the, it ended. Yeah. But no, that, it's, there's so the, heaps of precedents. So the alternative is the coronial inquiry, right? Mm. And we're still, we're still waiting. Now, yeah. the, the problem with the coronial inquiry is that the idea that it is too narrow, that it's not going to provide an opportunity to have this matter here. But I come back to my fundamental frustration, which is that Michael and Joe are speaking from a position of knowledge that is more... Uh, detailed than everybody else in this room, right? There's things that they know that haven't come out. That's the problem. No, they would have come out in an independent, um, confidential inquiry. Well, they wouldn't have come out if it was a confidential inquiry. I mean, there would have potentially been the capacity to suppress all of that information if it was a confidential inquiry. Well, it but it, I'm not talking about whether it was known by the public necessarily, but I am talking about whether or not the allegations and the content of them could have been exhaustively considered by an appropriately right, constituted no, body, which would go to the point of whether or not Christian Porter should have stayed in Cabinet. But, but, but Sam, Sam is right to the extent of it's a, it's a peculiar story in knowing that, as other friends of, her, of hers have said to me, you know, this really is the tip. It, it, what's in the public domain is a fraction of, of the evidence that would be given to such, a, um, to such a group or such a body or investigation. And so that is kind of difficult to, to navigate because it seems from watching that that body of evidence like lends people's conviction, makes people very convicted and has made people kind of fight for her, but, but it's not able to be broadly assessed. Yeah, all but the more it, reason to have an inquiry. Oh, yeah. no, right. No, no, I, it, I'm saying that, but it's this. Yes. Um, um, Joe, how have you... One of my questions coming in is about vicarious trauma and what it's meant for you to go through all of this like it's tough oh look it absolutely has been unbelievably tough there's no doubt about that um i think a couple of things i would say about it is that firstly is i haven't been doing it alone um there has been a group mm. of people um and you know one of the odd silver linings about this terrible experience has been that there's been a group of people um with whom we used to... I used to have strong friendships but really hadn't seen for many years who have come back into my life um, and remained in my life. Um, you know, Mark Lawyers has been kind of incredible uh, and, you know, other heroes of the piece. Um, so... And the other thing is, I guess, the story and the, the, the reality of it all has had such an odd momentum um, that it... There's never really been a conscious decision that you'll engage with it. Kate came to us, or to me, you know, then suddenly she was gone. Um, as I say, we knew what... I knew what she wanted to happen. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't really that you made a conscious decision or I made a conscious decision to kind of keep with it um, and thought about the ramifications and implications of that. Conversely, you, I would have to have made a conscious decision to step away from it um, and to let it go. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was not a decision that I was going to make. Um, so you're in this sort of extraordinary kind of 
flow um, and, and had to just go with it. Um, and also, of course, it was around the time that we were all living fairly atomised lives because of COVID. So whilst you were very conscious that there's this scandal mm. happening everywhere and playing out, particularly in the media, for as a the, your personal experience of it was sort of sitting in your study, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of you know trying to supervise home learning. <laughs> so <laughs> there's this odd um, dissonance mm. um, throughout the whole process. And the questions come in for for Joe and Michael. So we'll go start off with you, Michael. If you could tell us one thing about who Kate was as a human um, and as your friend, what what would that be? Tell us about her. Um. She impressed me as, ah, oh, she was so, one of those incredibly intelligent, intellectual type people that you meet, who, you know, who sort of function at a, at a quite elevated intellectual level in, in her language and um, the, the way she, she spoke. It's very bright, um, uh, but tortured. I mean, she had had a terrible life. Um, and um, the compounding impacts of what she'd suffered in her life, bearing down on her. But by the time I met her, extremely heavily. Um, mm. and, um, and she was struggling to get to the surface, I guess I could put it that way. Joe. Yeah, I mean, I think um, one of the great tragedies about this story, and there are many, uh, is that you know, when we knew each other um, as younger people, um, you know, she was just a star. Um, and she was incredibly, as Michael says, incredibly smart. She had a seriousness of intent um, in everything that she did. And um, what was so wonderful, really, about the relationship that we had is that through the sort of world of debating and, and the kind of intellectual banter and repartee and so on that took place all the time, there was this great sense of fun. <laughs> um, so it was through our relationship and that world that the playfulness in Kate could uh, manifest itself more fully perhaps than in, I think she came from a relatively conservative background um, and there was a seriousness of purpose and intent. Um, there was, she had um, her family had clear ambitions for her. She had ambitions for herself. Um, so being able to bring the kind of spirit of Alain and joy uh, through our friendship and that with others, I think, was important. Um, and I think that was what she was trying to return to um, when she came to us to, to kind of marshal the army, as it were, and the support for that. Um, Pretty amazing army. Like, if you're going to have, like, all these brilliant people that got together with top debaters <laughs> across the country, that that's my gang. Like, that's pretty well thought out. Like, yeah, no, she, yeah. she did well with it. Yeah, that. right? Um. Yeah. Um, I, have a, we, I think we've only got about six and a half minutes left, so I'm, so I'm, I'm just going to ask you each, finally, the, the last question that we've got in, and you could each speak for an hour on it, I realise, which is... Why don't people believe women? And I should say, when I started out by talking about that as a, as a phrase that's been used a lot through me too, I think Tamara Burke explained this the best when she was on 7.30 and Lee Sales asked her about it, and believing women not being about 
every single thing every woman says is true. Believing it means taking allegations seriously and not sweeping them under the carpet, not hearing them in 10 years' time, but recognising them and hearing them out now. So I thought that was, that was actually what people have always been saying. But why don't... Each, each of you, we have about two minutes each. Why don't people believe women, Sam? Well, because culturally, um, you know, we've been taught that uh, rape is a crime of he said, she said. I mean, that was the language that Peter mm. Dutton used. Um, and people get incredibly infuriated about that. But the problem is that it's a crime that is often conducted without witnesses. So as, you know, inflammatory is the line he said, she said is, that, that is the reality and that's at the heart of the criminal justice system. Mm. Um, I completely agree with that idea that I am very uncomfortable with the idea that people say, uh, you know, I believe women means everything is accepted without any inquiry. Um, I mean, Christian Porter was probed about that question at that first press conference where some journalists said, oh, you know, you're saying that you, the government should believe women, but, you know, you're questioning this. That's not how it works. How it works is that you believe women by taking the allegations seriously, investigating it. The tragedy is that this, that has not occurred here and that cannot occur here um, for a variety of reasons, principally that Kate is no longer with us. And that is a tragedy for everybody involved. And we were told that, you know, Mr Porter would give evidence on oath in the defamation matter that involved Louise Milligan and, and subsequently Joe, which was a slightly different equation. <laughs> but that, for me, the um, difficulty and the dilemma with this story is that that hasn't happened uh, and there is still information that is not on the public record and that is a really difficult situation. Mm. Michael? Yeah, I think about this in, in a sort of terms of a cognitive dissonance, which seems to just continuously infect our society. And it's simply this. We all know, I mean, every woman knows a woman who's been raped and no men know a rapist. <laughs> and so we know as fact that if we walk down the street, we're walking past survivors of rape. But we pretend we're not walking past rapists. But the maths tell us um, they're everywhere. So we built this entire system around this weird um, illogicality. Uh, and, and that's why every time a man is accused of, of this crime, this, you know, this wrongdoing, society rushes to his aid um, as if you know, there's only one or two of them out there. But mm. right, we've got to get past that mm. as, a, as a starting point. It just doesn't make sense. Mm. So, well, look, I, I mean, I, I just agree with Michael in all of that. Um, that, you know, there are systems of power, there's structures and systems which are built and constructed to support those who are being accused um, of a crime as opposed to those who are doing the accusing. Um, and in, you know, Kate's case, she was very aware of that. Um, and everything that unfolded um, was exactly as we'd kind of war-gamed. Um, but the big difference was that Kate was no longer with us to... to 
to participate in the you know the debate that then ensued. So, you know the, that men and Christian Porter uh, in particular seemed to think that they could just ride it out, mm. um, and the system will kick in <laughs> and will protect them. Mm. And that's exactly what happened in this scenario. Um, but, you know, in, in this particular instance, um, we just weren't going to let that happen. And I think that's increasingly what uh, this next generation of young women are saying. It's this is no longer good enough. You cannot rely on the systems to protect you because we are coming for you. <laughs> um, and we are not going away. And just finally and quickly, what do you think Kate would have thought of where we are at now? Well, I think she'd be very pleased, actually, um, because we had very, again, conscious and explicit conversations of... And I'd said, you know, we were so worried for her mm -hmm. um, and what this would mean for her personally. So given that the criminal justice system was unlikely to, to be uh, an avenue which afforded satisfaction, it's like I said what will the benchmark of success be? How will you measure success in all of this, given the possible costs and the likely consequences? And she said, look, if in all of it, he just doesn't get to be prime minister, <laughs> I will be happy. All right, we are just about exactly out of time. But before we thank everyone, I do want to say a couple of things. The first is that um, these lovely um, people are going to be signing their books, More Opinions, More Thoughts, all in book form, out in the foyer if you want to come and have them signed. Um, and don't forget about 1-800-RESPECT for you or anyone um, as you're kind of thinking through the things that we've said and all the consequences of these debates which play out in public and in many people's um, own beings as well. Thank you so much all for coming. And I really want to thank these three um, who've worked so hard in so many different ways to bring all this to light. So thank you, guys. Watch this talk and others at All About Women 2022 on stream. The new streaming service from the Sydney Opera House. Register for free now and start watching. Follow the Sydney Opera House on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook.